My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, your host, and I'm joined today by Alex Stewart. Hello. <clears throat> Hello, how's it going? Fine. Quick note, we are now available on YouTube again. Our, the uh, Search for TIFO Podcast, the channel, and uh, there'll be videos to the channels here. So if we have guests that you would like to look at in the future, you will be able to look at them and us there, which is very exciting, isn't it? Hugely. Mm. Anyway, today... Um, to celebrate that and the fact that we've reached the end of the season and we don't have uh, too many teams left to investigate from the Premier League. We're doing a Q&A, so we put out a, uh, a YouTube community post last week, asked our followers, members for questions, and we have a list of them here. So we're gonna, we picked out the ones that we uh, thought would be easiest to answer and that we'd have to put the least amount of work into. Uh, <laughs> and um, we've got them here, so we're going to try and get through all of them. Um, and without further ado, Alex, the first one is uh, from Benjamin Herlock. Will you please do a football manager series over the summer? No. Yes, okay. And the reason is <laughs> we're too busy. The reason is that they're incredibly time consuming. Takes too long. Yeah, way too long. Um, but you have done one before. Yeah. Well, you've done several. I, I've done several. Um, but the really good one is... On the set pieces. Yes, which um, is a website. Yes. Um, which used to be edited by... Ian McIntosh, uh, and was then edited by Matt Stanger, mm -hmm. um, who's now at Joe, and I believe is currently edited by Greg Lee. Okay. Um, so yeah, on, on the set pieces where I, I did a kind of money ball thing with Bristol City. It was good, that. It was all right. I yeah. read it. I really enjoyed it. It okay. became one of those things that I was actually excited to read the God, next instalment really? of. I was there at the time when, uh, when they were being published. Uh, yeah, there was something weirdly exciting about it. Yeah, okay. but it was like a sped-up football season. Who was the Who was that great young player who I can't remember if he was already at Bristol or if you bought him in, but became the sort of crux of the team. Um, well, Luke Freeman was the guy. It was who, Luke Freeman. Yeah, he was already there, and he um, became really good. He became really good. You did eventually sell him, didn't you? I did. Yeah, because there was there was no compassion when it came to retaining players, right? Yeah, none whatsoever. Yeah, there's there's a set of rules at the beginning of the the first episode, which I then I think recap. You did it through Moneyball. Yeah, uh, so what sort I, of set of rules you were kind playing? of there, there were there were two sets of rules that I, I sort of borrowed and adapted from Soconomics and the numbers game yeah. um, and to do with transfers. And it wasn't, it wasn't kind of like hyper money ball. I didn't get so deep into the stats because I really didn't have time. I ran it for 10 seasons, which as you can imagine, just playing 10 seasons takes a long time and sure. then writing about it and making a note of everything. Sure. Um, but it, it sort of is a, a basic guide to how not to get suckered into spending lots of money unnecessarily. Uh -huh. And I believe, well, let's not give away any Let's spoilers. not give it away, but it went all right. You did quite well, didn't yes, you? Yes, yeah. reasonably yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we will leave a link to uh, in the description of this, uh, the video or the podcast. If anyone wants to go and read those, I would highly encourage you do so. They make for an, an entertaining and oddly, uh, oddly compelling 
even though they shouldn't be. Nothing about it says you'll want to keep reading this. No. Um, and I can understand that if you're listening and thinking that sounds shit. It really <laughs> does. But no, weirdly, it's, um, weirdly it's very good. Uh, so Benjamin Herlock, thank you for that question. And I hope that will sate your, uh, your interest. Uh, a question from JM. England has two incredibly talented young right-backs in Trent Alexander-Arnold and Aaron Wan-Bissaka. It seems a shame to waste either one of them. Can you see any way of both fitting into the England squad in the future, possibly moving Alexander-Arnold into central midfield, or by converting Wan-Bissaka into a centre-half? Yes, uh, this is a good question, and this uh, it always seems like there are conundrums within England I was trying to teams. think of more. Well, like I mean, good historical examples where one great player has missed out because there's been another great player. The the obvious example is is trying to balance Gerard Lampard and Scholes in the same midfield. And also, um, what about also Leighton Baines behind Ashley Cole? Uh, yes, another another time he would have been an England starter. Leighton yeah, Baines. absolutely. Um, I, I and I think I think fullback is is particularly one of those interesting positions to ask that question because. Um, obviously modern fullbacks are extremely attacking um, and, and in some instances and in some kind of systems particularly play almost as wingers. Um, so, you know, covered by a, a defensive midfielder dropping back to create a kind of back three and the, the yeah. fullbacks bomb forwards. And with Trent Alexander-Arnold, often he plays behind Salah, right? Yes, exactly. So, you know, and, and, and Liverpool's midfield is, is reasonably narrow. Um, and that's because he provides width. He has the engine to get up and down that flank. He can facilitate both attack and defence. Um, if England played in a kind of classic four-four-two, then you could easily see Alexander Arnold as as a right midfielder with uh, Wan-Bissaka behind him. Um, I, I think the the sense of converting Wan-Bissaka into a centre half probably comes from the way that England played during the World Cup with Carl Walker playing as, as the right-sided centre-back of three. Would that work? Um, to be honest, I, it's, a, it's really difficult to answer because until... I mean, some people would suggest that the Carl Walker experiment didn't really work during the World Cup. I think, I think there were definitely positives from it and you could see why it was being done. Um, Wan-Bissaka would be the more appropriate of the two players to do that. But then to mention another Liverpool player, um, Joe Gomez, who plays both as a centre-back and can play as a, a, a right-back, would be a more natural fit for that position. Uh, I think sometimes I think sometimes really good players just miss out. And, and it's not... I, I can't see moving Trent Alexander-Arnold into central midfield, I think, for two reasons. Firstly, he's not played there. It, you know, it seems odd to shoehorn him in in that way. But also, England do have a lot of good, talented central midfielders trying to come through. And you look at people like, you know, attacking central midfielders like James Madison not being able to get into the squad um, because uh, the, there's just a, a surfeit of guys that can play there. So I think you need to be very careful not to say, well, you know, we, we pick our 11 best footballers and then try and fit them into a system. I think the, the difficulty of international management is balancing a number of available good players with a system that works and retains integrity throughout an international tournament. I would rather have Alexander Arnold as a starting right back or right wing back with a really, really good backup on the bench than try and shoehorn them into a system where it might not work. 
I have to say, I think that one of my favourite moments of the season, and it's probably obvious what I'm going to say now, is the Liverpool game against Barcelona where Trent Alexander-Arnold does the... Well, does the... Well, not the, fake, but... The double fake corner, I yeah. suppose. The double faint. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's brilliant. I think that's amazing. Absolutely brilliant. And I also, I loved it uh, And afterwards. it was entirely planned. Well, it was planned in the sense that... um Because uh, afterwards Klopp said that that specific move wasn't planned but that his his uh, what was planned was he told them to be unpredictable and take risks and if you're going to if you're going to win 4-0 yeah you're going to have to do things that they aren't expecting but they had they'd noticed that that Barcelona often got kind of sloppy immediately after conceding a set piece because they would they would spend more time arguing the decision than mm. they would kind of immediately falling back and picking up their markers so yeah there was there was an opportunity there. Like he's he's an extraordinary footballer. And, I mean, and the plus signs are if anyone noticed that it was the players because Klopp didn't tell him to do it. So if he <laughs> noticed that, yeah. and it, how old is he? Is he a teenager still, or is he in his uh, early twenties now? He's uh, he's, he's at young, most right? twenty one. I'm afraid of calling people young now uh, because of uh, the the last week's episode. We talked about West Ham and uh, the left back whose name I've forgotten. Uh, ben Chilwell. No, no, um, no. Oh God. Um, What's his name? Yes, C, I know who you it begins mean. with a C. Uh, yeah, I know who you mean. God damn it. Anyway, he's young. Also, I keep hearing, um, I keep seeing people leaving YouTube comments and various tweets about everyone calling Jesse Lingard young. And Jesse Lingard is, is 20, 26, 27 years old. Yeah. yeah. Yes, but no. Um, Aaron Cresswell. Aaron Cresswell. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold is young. We know that. Yes. We know that. Okay, um, Wan-Bissaka as well is attracting a lot of attention. Uh, there are talks that he might be moving somewhere this summer. Presumably you can, you can see him fitting into one of the Premier League's big teams. Oh, for sure, yes. And, and, and also with his age, you know, the ability that he's shown at this age in a... You know, I think, I think sometimes, like, Roy Hodgson has done a really, really good job at Crystal Palace. Um, and he's... Hodgson is a particularly sound defensive coach, even if Palace aren't necessarily the most sound team defensively. That's, you know, that's just personnel. So for him to work under a coach as astute as Hodgson uh, and to be able to kind of balance defensive responsibilities with attacking instinct, I think that that sort of sets him up to go on and be a really, really top class right back for quite some time. Papagendo, I think might be my favourite name of the day, Papagendo. Uh, says, is Eddie Howe overrated? Well, okay, really difficult question that. It depends who's rating him. It depends who's right. It depends what you mean by overrated. My inference uh, from Papagendo's question is the sense that, you know... <laughs> that a, name. A, a, Papagendo. Um, sounds like a shit board game, it's, it? It sounds to me like a, uh, a um, what do they call a Jedi? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. no, it could be that. Papagendo um, with the purple. Uh, I can't do pop cultural references. Please okay, continue. right. So so I think what, what Papagendo means is this sense that Howe was kind of lauded as being the best young English manager, a potential um, successor in the England job himself. And cited for all the big six clubs, right? And cited for all the big six clubs. And yet, you know, Bournemouth have... In in the Premier League, they they kind of went up. They, obviously, when they were their first season of promotion, they finished sixteenth and they finished ninth. But there's been a regression now, and it's twelfth, fourteenth. So overrated in the sense of yes, he's good, but has he really moved Bournemouth on? Well, I think Bournemouth have developed a bit this season, 
Uh, I think if you look at the performances that he's managed to coax out of people like Ryan Fraser, Callum Wilson, um, and, you know, that Bournemouth team is still not a side that's bursting with high quality players. So I think it, it's rating a manager is always relative to the players that they have at their disposal, the system that they're trying to play. And I think what Howe has done is he's achieved stability. He's made Bournemouth very much a kind of staple now of the Premier League after four seasons. Um, they are still always going to be slightly in danger of of being sucked into a relegation battle, but they seem to have enough about them not to. I think the, they were impeded this season as well by a long-term injury to Lewis Cook, who is one of the most promising young English central midfielders in the league. So I, I, I think it's I think it's unfair to say he's overrated. I think it would be an interesting test to see him move up. I don't think he should jump to a top six club as his first move after Bournemouth. I think staging somewhere in between those two things, somewhere where he's got more resources, where he's got a slightly higher calibre of player. Where is that? Well, it's really tricky, isn't it? Because the Premier League now is, it's so sort of fat around the middle. It, it, it's quite hard to distinguish. You know, we, we talk about that second tranche of clubs, which includes Leicester. Well, they're not going to get rid of Brendan Rodgers within the next season or so. Um, Watford look very happy with Javi Gracia. Um, then you've got Wolves and he's not going to go anywhere either. Um Everton, maybe, but then Everton sort of always seems like a kind of... And they spent quite a lot of money on Marco Silva as well, so the idea that they're going to lose him. Yeah, Um, so so it's difficult to see. I mean, I think think someone like Howe would be... It would be very interesting to see him possibly, I don't know, take a a couple of seasons in the Bundesliga, for example, and and work with young players over there, um, learn more about the technicalities of of how to fit in with a kind of, I think, I think German football has a more intelligent system of club running than, uh, than English football often has. Mm. I can't see him doing that. Incidentally, it's, you know, um, it would be great though. Well, it would be great. Um, do you know what I learned today? What? I learned today that it, and this is slightly, um, less interesting by the, due to the fact that this was in 2009. (laughs) I don't know how different it is now. I'm reading quite a long PDF report at the moment. And in 2009, there were uh, 6 million registered footballers in Germany, which is uh, six times the number of registered footballers in England, Italy, France. Uh, I think Spain is slightly more, we're in the 2 million mark, but twice as many as the second placed country. Mm. I just wondered why that was. I thought maybe it might be something as simple as they have a different structure, which requires players to register at a lower level, or they've got a lot more footballers. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think... I think something that differentiates England from most of the rest of Europe is the the cost of doing coaching badges and I think it's a lot it's a lot cheaper and a lot more accessible to learn how to coach within the UEFA system outside of the UK and therefore if you have more qualified coaches it's probably easier to proliferate a lower league system mm. at a higher standard and therefore have more players who are interested in registering for that because they're learning lots more and I, I don't know, that's speculative, but... It's all speculative. It's all speculative. Tahamama, what are the key tactical differences between international and club football? Yes, that is a big and tricky question. Um, 
I think I think an easier way to answer it is to say that what tactical differences exist are a result of the constraints of international football. Um, this is something that Jonathan Wilson's written about quite a lot. Um, because, apologies for interjecting, but otherwise would the question not be what are the tactical differences between league and cup structured football? Yeah, because international football is, generally speaking, following a kind of cup system, e- even if it's something like the uh, UEFA Nations League or qualifying for the Euros or the World Cup, because of the bunching of fixtures and then the gap between them, even though those are leagues in the sense of a small kind of number of teams that all play against each other home and away, it feels like a cup competition because each fixture matters mm. and because there's, you know, there's gaps between them. Because of that, coaches therefore have much less time to work on comprehensive systems of play. And I think that the the biggest single difference, therefore, is that a lot of international teams will be based on defensive solidity because it's easier to coach defense than attack uh, and on having a star player or two through whom most of the the stuff is fed now whether that's an attacking midfielder or a striker or whatever but you play to your strengths you try and keep things solid at the back and it's simply a result of the fact that a coach will only have a finite number of games or finite number of days sorry in which to prepare for games so I think what that means is that you you tend not to see the more overtly complex tactical systems in international football that you see in league football. Mm. So obviously there are outliers to this. Like when Spain were so dominant, they were playing a particular style of football, which was very resonant in terms of how Barcelona played at the time. However, that's because as you were making hand gestures, right? They, they, they had so many players from Barcelona and also, you know, a very high caliber of player from Real Madrid who basically filled most of the rest of that squad with one or two from here and there. I think there was one. I mean, I remember one of those, it might've been the world cup or the euros 2010 or 2012, uh, 2008 was it, where there was one player who wasn't in one of those two teams. Right. So, um, you know, there's, Obviously, in those unusual instances, it's a lot easier. Um, And there's some interesting research on uh, rugby that was done by a guy called Ben Darwin, who was an international prop for Australia and retired with a neck injury, who showed that in rugby, cohesion, particularly positional cohesion, is one of the single greatest indicators of success in tournaments. So if you have uh, particular pairings like a scrum half and a fly half, um, or two locks or whatever who play together at club level and then play together at international level, that team is more likely to do well. And if you have the same core group of players who go through whole international tournament cycles, you're more likely to do well. So if you're building uh, an international team out essentially out of a club and then adding on a few things, it, it's going to be a lot easier for you because those players are used to playing together. They understand one another. And, and it's really hard to build that in very, very short periods of time. I Tot- think Tottenham? Well... With, it, with the England team, I mean? Tottenham with the England team because they're probably the team that, that has the greatest number um, of, of English players who are like... I mean, you know, Liverpool have got Henderson, Milner, Trent Alexander-Arnold probably Joe Gomez in a season or two 
and and that's that. Um, Spurs have obviously got a number with with you know Harry Kane, Deli Ali, Trippier, Danny Rose, etc., etc. Eric Dyer, yeah. So I think that does make sense. I think that's one of the reasons why um, why managers, England managers, for example, worry about the number of foreign imports into the Premier League. It's partly because if you don't have large numbers of English players playing together for the same team, you then get a really, really fractured group who come into a training camp. In some instances, actually, sometimes they, they may not even like each other very much, you know, because domestic rivalries and so on. But you're, you're going to struggle to impose a system. I think that the thing with international football is you keep it simple. You try and pick as many players from the same side as you possibly can, and you don't overcomplicate because mm. it, that... You, know, you just don't have time. Uh, Kagaru, in a situation where on the pitch leadership is weak and player motivation is limited, do you think it would make sense to import a leader into a club or would it be more appropriate to groom one of the existing players into a more leadership-orientated role? Or oriented. I never know how to say that word. I like to say orientated. Yeah. Is that wrong? I don't know. Well, anyway, uh, Ka- Kagaru's question. Kagaru's question's a really good one um, because I think... You know, there are previous examples of an obvious example would be someone like Roy Keane at at United, who was brought in because he was a particular style of player. And I think Ferguson identified quite early on from the way, because I think Keane was captaining Nottingham Forest when he was purchased or or had done. I don't know. There was there was definitely a sense. He was very young. He was very young, but but I think he was identified as somebody who would grow into this role, if not be that already Mm. so i think i think it's really crucial and we were talking before uh, about a book called the captain's club um which i think is by sam walker sam wallace something like that and it talks about the importance to kind of dynastic sports franchises sports franchises that dominate a particular sport for a particular period of time um of having a captain who isn't necessarily the best player, isn't necessarily the star or the... Simon Wadsworth. The Captain Club. Oh, no, you're, that's a different book. The Captain's Club, Men Who Led United, that book is. No, 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 it's not that one. Sorry. Um, so, for example, if you look at the, the Barcelona team that was so dominant, then the, the, the captain was Puyol. Now, Puyol was not the most creative player. He wasn't the biggest goal scorer. He... In many regards, he wasn't the best player at all. He had the most wonderful hair. He had the most wonderful hair, but he probably wasn't even the most kind of cultured defender. Mm. But he embodied something about that club and, and elevated everybody else by the way he approached things. So leadership is, is really, really important. I think to look at, at Kagaru's question, I think you have to accept that bringing somebody in to be a leader who is an existing leader elsewhere is probably not the best way of doing it. I think if you look at the players who have been consistently strong leaders, they have grown into that role within the club, by and large. There are pros and cons, aren't there? And let's take it back to Eddie Howe, because we had this conversation once before about Eddie Howe, who played at Bournemouth and then became the uh, the, the coach. Yes. Right? And we wondered uh, when we discussed this last time whether that would have been easier because he knew the players, he understood them, he had positive relationships, 
or whether that would have been harder to shift or transition the dynamic that he already had with those players into a different one whereby he was the leader and they were the followers. And I, it's, I, I think that, a, that's a difficult manager too, is, right? Yeah, but a manager is not a leader in the same way that this question is posing. Because even before a player is a captain, for example, say Roy Keane had come through the youth system at Man United, people would have already been inspired by him and respected him before he was officially made the captain. Is that, 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 that's what you mean? That, that's what I'm saying. And I, I would also argue that, that you would... So if you look at that, that kind of group of United players, for example, Gary Neville is a leader. Nicky Butt kind of is a leader. Roy Keane definitely is. David Beckham isn't. Paul Scholes is by example, maybe. Well, and, and Beckham too, but, I, but um, they're, not, they're not the sort of players that are... You know, if you if I think about leaders in the Premier League era, I'm thinking of people like Tony Adams. I'm thinking of like Patrick Vieira. But what about Roy David Keane. Beckham for the England team, though? Again, by example. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd, I'm not underrating Beckham's achievements as an England player because I think he absolutely yanked that team along mm. sometimes. But uh, but it wasn't in the same way. I think he was somebody who was able to seize individual moments individual mm. opportunities to do something extraordinary and propel the team to a result by that but i don't think he was a leader in the same way as a tony adams or a patrick Vieira or, or mm. roy Keane. and and they were players who matured into that role within that club so i think what you need to be doing is is looking at your crop of players who are coming through um, and you want to look at, you know, is is there somebody who stands out through their work ethic, through their commitment to certain things, through upholding the values that you have as a club? Their, their understanding of uh, tactics and their ability to communicate that on the pitch? I think that's helpful, but to me that's secondary. Um, because I think, for example, if you look at defenders are quite often this sort of you know, uh, whether it's Tony Adams, John Terry, even I don't like John Terry as a human being, but there's no doubt he was an extraordinarily, extraordinarily effective leader of Chelsea. I don't think he has to understand the tactics necessarily beyond what the defence is supposed to be doing in the transition. Mm. Not in the same way that, for example, a Frank Lampard would have to understand the tactics. Um, his job is to rally people, to lead by example, and to provide a kind of almost a soul to that team on the pitch mm. and, and to embody the values of that side. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and, so, and, a, and a representative as well, so that other players would feel that there is a buffer between them and the coach, there is a buffer between them and the fans, there is a buffer between them and the media, yeah. and that someone's got their back. Yes, I think, I think that's really important. I think that's increasingly important. And I think that's why if you look at um, you know, some, some teams... Like, for example, France in the World Cup, you know, they're, they're obvious leaders in that squad. And Pogba, you know, the, the people who question Pogba's attitude generally as a human being, not as a Manchester United player, need to watch the speech that he gave during halftime of, of the World Cup final. Mm. That is a leader. There's absolutely no question about that. You know, he, he is eloquent, inspiring, like he brings people together. It's, it's a phenomenal thing. Um, I think a newer generation of players maybe are less uh, sort of assertively leading in the way that a Puyol or a Terry or an Adams did and more leading by uh, sort of fostering a sense of collaboration and communication. And, and I always think about this scene in The Wire, in HBO's The Wire, 
uh, which I'm sure many people listening have seen. It's a wonderful television program. There's a, I think it's in series three or four, maybe. And there's a particular character who's running for, for mayor of Baltimore. And he is white. And the joke within the show is that if you want to run for the mayor of Baltimore, you have to be black. Otherwise, you're not going to be elected. And his campaign strategist says to him, because he has a very sharp tongue, and uh, he's, he's, at the time before he's running, he's uh, head of the council, I think. So it's his job to interview the police commissioner and uh, make headlines in a way. He has a very sharp tongue and he's very good at making headlines. And his cam- campaign strategist says to him, it's not just about making them look silly. It's about making everyone in the room uh, feel like they want to go with you or they want to be inspired by you. And this is a, this is a theme that certainly pops up in, in, in politics. It's one of the things that it, a criticism that is levied at um, <clears throat> Jeremy Corbyn as a, as a good example of British politics, someone who, um, sure, uh, politically on, and certainly in terms of policies, people might broadly agree with for the most part but isn't necessarily someone who you watch and makes you, they, they don't make you want to go with them. Yeah. You could level that claim at pretty much anyone in British politics, by the way. That's not an insult at Jeremy Corbyn. It's just an example. Um, maybe this is the same thing here. There, there are examples of players that we could think of in Premier League teams who might be quick to sort of crack the whip at other players or might be quick to uh, criticise uh, other clubs. But mm. unless they have something about them, as you say, with John Terry to those other Chelsea players, there's something about him that ma- they makes them want to go with him yeah. rather than just do what he says because they're afraid of him or, or they like him. And, I, and I, I think that's a really, really fascinating point because I think if you look at, so, so, you know, t- two, of the, two of the kind of uh, most acerbic pundits around at the moment are Sunas and Keane. And they're constantly bewailing, you know, modern footballers and the attitude of this guy and this guy's an Instagrammer and this guy's got stupid haircuts and blah, blah, blah. And and they were both extremely dominant leaders, and and it's I think it's quite easy in some instances to forget because Sunas has become such a grumpy parody subsequently. What a extraordinarily good footballer he was, even mm. if he's a bit thuggish at times. Um, I think they would underestimate their own ability to bring everyone else with them, and I think they would probably see a lot more of what they did as leaders as being down to being combative and assertive and angry and i think they're wrong about that i think they probably did inspire people to go with them in a way that they might not have seen and and i think there's now you know real leadership like the pogba example i gave earlier is is softer it's not you know shoving somebody up against a wall and saying you are going to make that tackle next time it's about inspiring people and bringing them with you. And, and the best leaders are able to do that. Now, that, there's a transition, and this, this is a thing that has been commented on by others, that the people who talk about football externally, pundits as, you know, who are former players, have not been party to this transition in the same sort of way. And some older managers have not been able to uh, bridge that transition either. Um, it's interesting that someone like Didier Deschamps clearly has because of the way he managed the France squad. So, and, and, and a lot of successful managers now are of a younger generation. They are more connected. They are more, you know, someone like Jurgen Klopp is clearly more of a kind of a father figure. I'm sure Jurgen Klopp can put a rocket up someone's ass if it's required. But they don't want him to, not because they, they don't want to deal with the hassle, but because they don't want to disappoint their dad. They don't want to disappoint their dad. And when their dad gives them a hug and says, good boy. James Milner cries. Right. You know, that, that's what he engenders. Mm. Um, 
and you know what about Matthias de Ligt for example or Matthias de Ligt is yeah. it, if you're in that if you're in that squad if you're daily blint you're playing next to him are you looking at him as a 19 year old and you're thinking Christ this this guy's really good he loves it he's he's Ajax through and through mm. and and uh he keeps scoring us goals. I'm inspired by that. Yeah. Is that what's happening there? I think so. And, and, and Eric Ten Hag gave a really long and detailed interview recently um, where he was saying that it's actually a very interesting example, that Blint is the, Blint is kind of Ten Hag's tactical proxy on the pitch. Right. Because he's very, very smart player. Blint's obviously played as a, a left back, a left wing back, a centre back, yeah. defensive midfielder. It's why Van Hal hired him at United. Right? Exactly, it didn't quite work out with personalities on the on the team sheet, maybe. But, but it should have done. That was the idea. He's a very smart guy, uh, and obviously his dad's a coach as well. It's um, incredibly attractive. He's really, really handsome. Yeah. So in that sense, it, there is a clear division. If if Ten Hag wants to get tactical instructions onto the pitch to players, he tells Daily Blint. De Ligt is there to inspire, to motivate, and to be an example of, of everything that Ajax stands for. And so that division, to me, makes perfect sense. And I'd say that, that you know, Ajax have a number of players who, because of the nature of that club and the way that players get brought through, they all get that. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ajax almost don't need a captain. They're emblems. Because they all kind of buy into what, what's going on there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Donny van der Beek, Frankie de Jong. You know, these are all people who, who kind of get it and get the system. And De Ligt just happens to be maybe the, the, the most eloquent of them. The tallest. Or, or the tallest. Mm. He, yeah, I think he is the tallest. Yeah. Uh, we could talk about this all day, I think. It's a very good question. It is. Thank you to Kagaru for that. Um, Bromo18, could you do podcasts on teams that aren't in the Premier League? Uh, well, Bromo, we could. I don't think they would be as good if, I mean, that's assuming that you think the ones we do at the moment are good. The reason being, um, Seb stafford Blore, who's usually here with us, um, is an accredited football journalist in the UK. And that means that uh, every week he's at maybe two games. He gets around the country, doesn't he? Um, but they mostly happen to be in the Premier League. Some of them will be in the Championship, occasionally lower down uh, in the English tiers than that. But uh, tends not to be abroad. He will sometimes go to European games, but it's not his focus. Um, Alex obviously will do tactics on uh, teams overseas, but what that tends to require is uh, slightly more research beforehand because w we just don't watch uh, the I, Euro European leagues as much as we watch have the Premier League. Time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's it's... so much football to do, and, I, and my worry is that if we stray too far from what we are comfortable talking about, uh, we will get to a point where we are either killing ourselves with, with the research to try and make it interesting, um, not acknowledging that there are other people out there better placed to do that. Yeah. It, it's just not, we're just not those people. Um, we would love to, and maybe in the future as TFO expands, we can uh, bring in people who can do that with us. Um, at the moment, it's not really possible. So now and then we, we might try to do that if it's a team that we feel particularly confident with. But that, that is the explanation as to why we don't. Do you want to add anything to that or is that fine? No, I, I, think, I think that's the case. I think that there are, there are plenty of people out there who are writing brilliant stuff on MLS, Liga MX, Liga, whatever it is. And we're, we're definitely not the kind of company that wades into a particular arena and claims it as our own like we've always been doing it when actually we haven't. Yeah. In fact, if you are English speaking only... There is at least one excellent journalist in every other country. Uh, so, for example, I'm thinking, for example, if you want to know more about Ajax, go and read what Elko Bourne writes. You know, right. If you want to know more about France, go and read 
fill in the gap for me, Alex. Oh, France. Um, Alex well, Netherton used to write a lot about France, but I don't think he does anymore. No. Um, the point is there'll be some. There oh, well, are, there well, are plenty uh, of people. What about uh, Philippe Auclair? Does he uh, write about French teams still? He does. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he does. Someone will. The point yeah. is there'll be an excellent person out there who will. I mean, All you have th- to do is go and find them. It, Twitter is... I mean, I hate Twitter, but it's a great resource for that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, and you will be able to find people and, and you quite quickly work out whether somebody is interested in the sorts of things you're interested in and has a, not a take that's the same as yours necessarily, but has a kind of a, a, a level of detail or a focus on what you're interested in. So, And at times I'm already out of my comfort zone and we haven't even left the country. So I think that's why. Reply Bait asks, will Manchester City dominate uh, the EPL like Bayern, Juve, and PSG for the next few years? No. Uh, well, really I mean, tricky question. This year, they didn't dominate. No, not and 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 they won by a point, didn't they? They won by a point. The margin of victory was not as big as the year before. Mm. Um, I believe I'm right in saying, and I can't take any credit for this stat if indeed I have remembered it correctly, that this is the first time ever that each of Europe's top five leagues has seen the championship retained by the team who won it last season. Right, that's interesting. Uh, I think that is, I'm fairly confident that that's true. But then we're also in the same season with the first time ever where four teams representing one nation fill the two European finals. Yeah. Which is again another reason why I feel like you can't say that Manchester City have dominated English football. No. They, 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 they haven't dominated the Premier League this year because it was unclear until the last day who was going to win. Uh, as you said, the, the margin was slightly bigger last year. I, if you're asking a Manchester City going to win the Premier League next year, it's a very possible yes. Uh, but if uh, it's, I don't think it would be fair to say that they will dominate again. Liverpool, no. so I don't feel like Liverpool are going to drop off. So if you look at Bayern in Germany, for example, you know they, they didn't dominate the league this year either. They, they won their 7th, 8th Bundesliga in a row, sure, but Dortmund pushed them uh, really hard um, and there are other sides that maybe maybe aren't going to unsettle them but I, I, I think I think there's a difference between winning and domination I don't think that you'll see Manchester City necessarily win six seven eight titles in a row the way that Juventus or Bayern have done mm-hmm. um, I think partly that's because there is a greater degree of financial competitiveness in the English leagues so I, I think there's less of a gap between Manchester City and the other sides in terms of financial spend. I, I think the area where really City and Liverpool particularly have set themselves apart is the intelligence with which they do everything, whether that's backroom staff, whether that's media, whether that's recruitment, stats, sports science. They are ahead of the curve in that regard. And so it's not just about being able to throw money around. Also, if you think about it, there aren't that many more points to win. I mean, Liverpool and Man City both Liverpool scored 90 only points lost, over what, 90 points. this season? Yeah, so uh, when you look at it that way, there's an awful lot of room for the teams beneath those two to improve. Yeah. And there isn't much room for Manchester City or Liverpool to I improve mean, in terms of points earned. I, I guess, I guess what, what reply bait probably means is will there now be a succession of Manchester City title wins that'll spread off into the next five, ten years? But if there are, it certainly won't be in the same manner that PSG win Liga. Exactly, yes. Even if Man City win five in a row and PSG win the same years, it won't be the same thing. It won't be the same thing. No. 
So, uh, no. I think that's a no. I think it's a hard no, reply bait. Uh, Joseph, is the away goals rule outdated? I like this one. Well, maybe you want to answer it then. Uh, my, I well, I can't. I just like... <laughs> the reason I like this question is because uh, it's the sort of thing I like to sit around and think about yeah. and then go, ooh, I wonder if Alex can answer that for me. Okay. Outdated. I, look, there has, to be, there has to be a way of deciding who ultimately wins in knockout competitions penalties. where there's two legs. So could you go straight to penalties? Possibly. Keep could playing. Keep playing forever yeah. until, until yeah. everyone just collapses. Um, I suppose the question is, do... Uh, Take away a player every two minutes until there are... Until there's just two goalkeepers left. Yeah. Yeah, okay, great. That's a good idea. It's quite a good idea. It's not a bad idea. Um, I, I guess the point of this question is, is the impact uh, of playing at home versus playing away of sufficient disparity still yeah. to merit away goals counting for more? I don't know the answer to that. People have done stats work on this. Yes, but before you explain that to me, I saw uh, last week by accident that if away if away games only counted, Crystal Palace would have been fourth. Yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, towards the end of a season, there are always there are always these. No, well, no, no. I tables. didn't. I didn't sit. It wasn't the case that someone else found that, and then I saw it on Twitter. For some reason, I was looking at the league table, and then I did the various different things. Oh just no, I fun. don't. I don't mean that you but don't I mean, take my achievement and my sure, discovery right. away I from mean, me. I've literally, definitely seen somebody else say that. The re- so. Well, it's probably after they heard me talking about it just now. Uh, what's very interesting about that, though, is that that's usually the reverse, right? A, a team like Crystal Palace, for example, you would expect that if Hodgson's come in and Danny's job properly, if we're getting them playing well at home. Uh, but they, I mean, it's, to it's be fourth because of counterattacking. It's, it's because they're set up with, with Zaha and Townsend Didn't think about that. particularly to attack in a certain kind of way. Didn't think about that. Um, it's the same reason that Wolves got better results against the top six than the bottom six. And, and I think this is a thing that, that Jonathan Wilson wrote about persuasively over the weekend, which is that the disparity now between the top clubs and everyone else is enormous. That, you know, in the wake of the FA Cup final where City beat Watford 6-0 and although there were only 10, point, 10 places, sorry, between them in the Premier League. 10 places? Less than that? I don't know. Um, the, the golfing class is, is enormous and, and part of the way that he shows this is the number of games has increased enormously where one side gets 65-70% possession the other side gets 30 and so there are teams that are set up better to play counter-attacking football and to play away from home and to wait for teams to come onto them and then try and hit them on the break. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To my mind that almost plays into a a kind of a, a re-relevance of away goals to come back to Joseph's question because what it means is that big teams like uh, Manchester City or whomsoever cannot necessarily go to teams and expect to pass them to death and keep possession all of the time and that that you know if you're if you're a team who is geared like Atletico Madrid for example a, a team that's geared to absorb pressure Mm-hmm. And then through very high caliber players hit teams on the break and score goals or from set pieces, then it is advantageous to you that the away goals rule counts double. 
and it, it allows teams that are maybe smaller, maybe geared to a, a more uh, counter-attacking style that is different from what a lot of teams are doing to still have an opportunity to win stuff. I like it. I'm sure we could talk about that more, but we have to move on because we've talked quite a long time already and we have only done half of the questions. Really? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Flipendo, uh, who is a TIFO YouTube football channel member, incidentally. Hey, if you Flipendo. would like to become a uh, TIFO YouTube channel member like Flipendo is, you can click the join button below our videos. Um, okay, Flipendo says, which of, their, uh, which of their many striking options should Chelsea be playing next year, assuming Sarri is still there? Higuain, if bought. Maratta, if not sold. Uh, Abra- Abraham... Batshuayi, uh, Giroud, and which of these most fits Sarri's system? At Napoli, it was Mertens. Is there any chance Sarri finds a similar solution and plays an unorthodox striker next season, which I think he tried to do with Hazard already, didn't he? He tried to do with Hazard already. Yeah. yeah. Let's keep this one short. Um, I think that I would play Abraham or Batshuayi. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he won't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that Abraham will be available to buy probably, for a decent rate, and I would buy him. Depending upon the uh, transfer issues at Chelsea, right? they might be keen to not let anyone go. That's true, but I, yeah, maybe they'd also be keen to get money for somebody that they can actually sell on like, the rest of that lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Hazard, the experiment with Hazard didn't work, not because Hazard didn't do well as a false nine, because he did, mm-hmm. but it restricted their ability to attack from where Hazard would normally attack. I mean, they really are massively dependent on that thing. And I mean, if he leaves in the summer... They're, they're in a world of trouble. Now, yeah. I, I think the, the short answer to the question is that he will try and play somebody else there, maybe someone like Pedro, possibly even randomly someone like Hudson-Odoi, mm-hmm. uh, if they hold on to him. The issue with Sarri is not that bit, though. The issue is the midfield balance, and that's what he needs to address. Okay. Uh, Golden Altaria. Golden Altaria. Apologies. Uh, What are your thoughts on the Chris Hewton sacking? Do you think that the Seagulls are... uh, (laughs) Sorry. I grew up with Seagulls. Are pushing their luck... Uh, by uh, canning the man who brought their club to the Premier League, or do you believe that it was the right to make a change? Incidentally, I watched a uh, coach's voice video with, um, uh, with, is it Graham Potter this morning? Uh, who I don't, he's not officially announced, is he? I don't know. Not officially, but, but it everybody looks that way. says that that's what's going to happen. Uh, which I, it was very interesting. I, I liked the look and, and the look and the vibe uh, to he, Graham he, Potter. He got his Ostersons players doing ballet. This was the, the the coach's voice video, which you should go and watch, incidentally. Um, it's a, the coach's voice is a great site. Mm. Really, really like it. And it's just Graham Potter sort of over a tactics board, um, replaying how he set up his team for a particular game and how a goal happened. And the amount that that man talks about space, I enjoyed myself. So, uh, yeah. but would you like to answer Golden uh, Al- Altaria's question? Okay. Um, I think that it's the right thing to do. Um, I think that... There isn't room for sentiment in football. Um, and the the analogue that everyone has sensibly suggested is uh, when Southampton got rid of Nigel Atkins and replaced him with Pochettino. Um, I think Chris Hewton has done a, a good job. The issue is that the recruitment that the club focused on, uh, and, and Brighton actually have a pretty tr- good track record of bringing in interesting players, but they're not players that suit Hewton. 
So mm. either the club should have thought a season ago, we're going to stick with Hewton, hell or high water, and we'll buy the sorts of players that work for him. They didn't do that. They started to transition to a more attacking, more inventive style. He wasn't able to keep up with that. Mm -hmm. One final thing that I would say about this is that I think it's very patronizing to talk about what a lovely man he is um, and say, oh, you know, it's such a shame that it's happened because he's so nice, right? He is nice. I'm sure he's very nice, but he's also an excellent professional and a very good manager. He's just not right for the club where they are at the moment. But don't focus on what a good guy he is. Focus on what an excellent job he's done at Brighton. Okay, Tim. Uh, just curious how you guys got into writing and analysing football. I'd love to do the sort of stuff you guys do for a living. So I got into it when I was doing I was doing a different job. I was working in the public sector and started blogging about football um, because I was bored and wanted to write and football was something that was fairly accessible. Um, and then I got interested in tactics because it seemed like while well, there was some good writing about it, there was a, a disparity between the amount of footage that was suddenly now available and the amount of good tactical writing on it. Plus, I like patterns, and I, that's just something I've always kind of enjoyed looking for. So my advice really would just be read a lot, watch a lot, um, and practice writing. I think that's the crucial thing. And obviously, there are different styles of writing. If you're writing a scouting report, that's going to be different to writing an article. It's going to be different to writing a script. Um, but writing is probably the skill of that whole skill set which is least valued by the people who do it. And there's some very smart people who really understand football who are garbage at writing. So that's the bit that's actually the thing that you need to practice mm. in order to set yourself apart. Uh, uh, okay. That would be my advice. I don't really do uh, writing or analysing football, so uh, no point in me answering that question. Uh, Jordan Anderson what are the channel's plans for this summer? Uh, Women's World Cup, question mark. Si, senor, we are doing uh, some Women's World Cup videos. Uh, nothing too specific on the tournament itself. I think we have something with Richard Laverty, journalist, writing about uh, England's chances ahead of the tournament, a little bit of tactics, that sort of stuff. Um, another couple of videos are primarily historical, if I remember correctly. We also have a handful of uh, Copa de America videos coming out. Again, they will be sort of ahead of the tournament rather than during. Unfortunately, we are a little bit too time limited to be able to do what we did with the World Cup, with the Copa America, which was to be uh, responsive throughout the day. It takes too much time, time which we don't have. So there is, are... Sorry, there is also going to be a members tactics video on at least one Copa America side, if not more. So you should become a YouTube football channel TIFO member. YouTube chip. Click TIFO join. Chip, the, the... Just to be clear, if you're watching this on the TIFO podcast <laughs> YouTube channel, don't click join because there won't be one, but go over to the TIFO football YouTube channel and click join or don't. I don't care. Uh, Jordan Anderson. I've answered your question, Jordan. Stop coming at me. Rogue Apple. Rogue Apple. Does this lack of quality defenders at the top... Oh, sorry. Does the lack of... I'm getting tired now. You can tell. It's been okay. an hour. Yeah. Does the lack of quality defenders at the top of the game come from the increase in competition starting basically from childhood weaning those with natural intelligence away, or is it simply the after-effects of systems coming to rule the land with players required to be less independent? Please bring back podcast videos. Your tired faces give me strength. Hello? Uh, in the mornings. Awesome work. Look forward to every video, especially the podcast. Didn't need to read that last bit out, but... but uh, just made you feel good As I said, yourself. I was tired before. Now I'm buoyed. Yes. Um, but I am tired enough to not really understand what, what the question was asking. Do you understand... 
Uh, I think if we take the element that is most understandable, um, I think what Rogue Apple is saying is that defending requires a reading of the game and a response to circumstances which becomes harder as play becomes more systematized. Mm. And I think that's a very perceptive point, even if the way Rogue Apple has phrased it is slightly complicated. It's certainly a thing that has been talked about a lot in rugby, that as uh, as attacks become more practiced and more systematized, it removes the degree of inventiveness that is sometimes required to break down... Back to Trent Alexander-Arnold. ...a defense. Yes, exactly. Um, I think defenders as well are being asked to do more. Um, so I... I think there is a general move. This is a very broad answer to the question. I think there is a general move towards most players now becoming effectively some sort of utility player. So a fullback is asked to be a defender in the wide space, but also an attacker in the wide space. A central defender is asked to defend the central space, but also bring the ball forwards and start attacks. Goalkeepers is an obvious example as well. Does that mean that they become less kind of core skilled around defense yes probably some of them do um i think it's really interesting that for example in the english game there hasn't been a defender in my opinion of someone like rio ferdinand's stature since rio ferdinand um and in the english game is in with english players or in the premier league sorry with with english players um I also don't think there's necessarily been that sort of, you know, I think if Rio Ferdinand came through football now, he would be a Fernandinho. I think he would play in that sort of six position mm -hmm. where his ability to read the game and also to pass and carry the ball. What about John Stones though? More John useful. Stones isn't that, but he could do those things. Um, he could do those things. I still think John Stones is, is prone to mistakes in a way that Ferdinand was much less so. Okay. Um, and I think it's really interesting that that as City accelerated towards the end of the season, we saw Vincent Company come back in. Yeah. Uh, and alongside Laporte and not John Stones. Captain so, Company. Right. Uh, know, uh, there's the a great Scott example of a, of, of a leader. Um, good, so, it's good. yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, Rogue Apple. Um, I think that in short the answer is that defenders are being asked to defend less and do other stuff more mm. and that means that by default they're not going to be as pure uh, in terms of defending ability perhaps as they were i don't think it's to do with intelligence i think footballers are generally more intelligent than they were before or, or in terms of their reading of the game their understanding of systems and tactics that has become more complex and therefore they have to be more aware of that and intelligent to understand those things but I also think there's a general trend towards utility players. Um, so that, that, again, probably is my answer to the question. Okay. But it's thought-provoking mm. and probably should take longer than just five minutes. Well, would that it were. Would that it were. Thank you, Rogue Apple. And to all of our other question submitters, apologies if you asked a question that we didn't get to. Uh, there was a, a large number of high-quality questions. High quality. Uh, but we are already over an hour now. And we don't have time. Uh, but thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As I said earlier, next week I will be chatting to Seb about travelling to away games in faraway lands and difficulties with that. What's the furthest you've ever been for a football match? Enfield. No, Norwich. No, probably Old Trafford. Okay. I've been to Scotland.
I have never, I haven't watched any football in Scotland though. Right. I don't like to leave the country. I like it here. Yeah. And I don't like these other places. I don't like them. Get, get away from me. No, listen, <laughs> I just want everything to be perfect for me. And if I can't travel to Baku, even though I had no intention of doing so, I'm upset by that because I want to be able to do everything possible. It yeah. is an upsetting thing. I don't know what I'm talking about. I haven't spoken to Seb yet. I am not the authority. It'll be great though. It'll be a great podcast. It will be good. Yeah. Uh, so tune into that. And then uh, over the summer, I would like to say that we are going to do some uh, videos related to transfers, but not in a gossipy way. We're not going to be saying, is, is, uh, is Frank Lampard going to, you know, hell? No, we're not doing that. We won't be doing that. We'll be saying, uh, here's a club like Chelsea. Well, Chelsea's a terrible example because they've got a transfer ban. Um, God, I've really cocked this up. Here's a club. Manchester United. Manchester United. Who would it be sensible for them to buy? Yeah. Hmm? Who would it on to, and to lose? Not who are they going to buy or who, you know, because we know if they buy someone, it won't be sensible. But who <laughs> would it be sensible for them to buy? And we'll be doing that. We might sort of rope those into some podcasts as well. Um, so uh, let us know if you have any thoughts or if anything you would like to hear in particular. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Back with you next week.